1: From Decrypt Media, this is the Decrypt Daily, and my name is Matthew Diemer. Today on the show, we have listener questions. I have some more two cents to put in, and we talk about Web 3.0. That's today on the Decrypt Daily. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today is Friday, July 30th, 2021. I have probably the longest show today that I've ever had on this podcast. So I want to get straight into those crypto prices, but please note, Get a snack, a beverage, pace yourself on this one. might take two trips, you know, going to work and home and work again to finish this one if that's how you listen to your podcast. But today's a long one. So buckle up and let's get into those crypto prices.
0: Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. And I'm recording this at
1: 1130 Eastern Standard Time. Bitcoin is in at $39,088, down 2.3% in 24 Ethereum's up a percent at $2,350. Tether's in the number three spot. Binance Coin is at $311, down 1.2%. And Cardano's number five at $1.30, down a percent. Running off the top 10, we have XRP, USDC, Dogecoin, Polkadot, and BUSD. Total market cap, we're at $1.54 trillion. Um, How much is that? That's $10 billion less than yesterday. With a BTC dominance of 47.6%. In our first segment today, we're talking listener questions and listener statements. How are you, Matthew? One lone rep from Ohio, if you win, fingers crossed, going to convince everyone of the 100 senators and all the other people in the house that crypto and NFTs and blockchain can provide great services like personal loans and luxury goods and validation of education and blockchain tech and or hold real estate contracts via smart contracts. How do you convince them of the industry and the industry is innovating for good? Man, you, we have a huge hill to climb keep it up 100 percent. that's a good question and i was asked this the other day on twitter spaces and i have like a three-part answer with this the first one is it's not just me it's you you and honestly this is how campaigns work you need to help me get to washington and yeah this is a money ask you need to donate to people who believe the things that you believe or support the things that you support right now i have raised about ten thousand dollars for this campaign from the crypto space that's not enough I need to have a million dollars from the crypto space and blockchain space and get to Washington. That is the truth. And not only do I need to go to Washington, but other people that are have the same beliefs or the same um, focus or motivations to create a framework for this industry gets to Washington. So I need a million. And this other person needs a million or two. And this other person needs a million or two. By the way, I do want to have campaign finance reform. I think this is disgusting how much money goes into this. But this is what we need to do for now. But the first answer to your question is, it's you guys. There is no lobbyists. There's no PACs. There's nobody really funding crypto or blockchain advocates going to Washington. So that's why I'm always asking you. Donate to the campaign. If a 1,000 people give a $1,000, it changes the whole ball game. And then it goes to my second answer that there's multiple people in Washington to create a committee together or join the blockchain advocacy C- committee and go to Washington to try to propose legislation and these frameworks. So first, get me to Washington and get other people like me to Washington by financing the campaigns. Number two, more people in Washington, the more, the more clout, the more voting power we have to create frameworks and legislation to do what we need to do politic, make connections, tell everybody how this is beneficial, advocate, and we have more people in Washington and more votes in Washington. And finally, we have to play the long game. Once I'm in, once other people are in, we have then we get other people in and other people in, and other people start to leave the Senate. And so what we're actually doing is we are climbing up that hill together. You said we have a huge hill to climb. We need to do it together. We all bring people up into that hill and more and more people get that advocate for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and blockchain tech in this industry will be in Washington. So it's the long game. I'm not going to go in there and change everybody's minds overnight, but if we want to have a 10-year plan, then let's start right now. Donate to the campaign, get me into Washington, get other people like me into Washington, and then we do it again. And that's what other people are doing that are getting their things done. Their people in Washington, they're legislating, they're advocating for the things they believe in. Where's the crypto space with their PACs? With their money, with their lobbying, with their donations, and their people going to Washington. So it is up to you as much as it's up to me. As we know, the infrastructure bill, the new infrastructure bill, uh, needs to, well, find funding for it. And one of the ways they're finding funding for it is $28 billion in extra revenue or tax revenue from crypto investors. They're gonna go after crypto investors. And yes, if you're trading crypto, investing in crypto, and making cap gains, you need to pay taxes in the US. However, I think it's absolutely unethical that they, the people on the Hill or the SEC or any other government body has yet to create regulatory framework for this industry. So this industry can thrive and survive and grow and innovate. And yet they're trying to raise revenue or raise capital to pay for different things off of basically the innovators in this, in this space and the traders, the retail investors, the mom and pop, me and you. And I am, I just think that that's horrible. It's unethical because they didn't do their job. These companies are trying to pave the way with innovation. They're trying to be entrepreneurs. We're trying to, I guess, uh, encourage this entrepreneurship, this innovation by either investing or trading or hodling or whatever we're doing with it. And instead of saying, we like this industry, This is good for the U.S. This is a net positive for our economy. They don't say that. They keep calling FUD. They keep with a negative connotation of this industry. Keep saying negative things about this space. And yet they want to raise revenue by this space. And I think that's just totally unethical. And well, you had some comments about what I said about that. And here they are. Don said the IRS is currently staffed at levels lower than usual, leading to going after low-hanging fruit, the little guy. In many respects, this makes sense due to the lack of ability to suffer an audit and retain counsel for the process. At the other end of the spectrum, wealthy individuals will have the ability to tie up resources within the IRS by dragging out the audit process over a much longer time. In other words, as far as the IRS is concerned, it's not worth it. Until there is a fair and equitable way of taxation for all people, we will unfortunately have this issue and the average investor will have a difficult time providing for semblance of retirement. The system seems to be geared to benefit those that have at the expense of those that don't. Keeping the average investor simply average. That's what Don said. Don, I agree with you. And this is what I saw. When Wall Street, when hedge funds, when banks are making big money, capital gains taxes went down. When the retail investors started making money, allowing the average person to buy stocks, to trade the market, and then all of a sudden, they're talking about raising capital gains. They saw the vulnerability of the average person making money and they said, oh, let's go get their money. That's exactly what they did. And they're doing the same thing in crypto. Instead of having the balls to come up and actually make a regulatory framework, they are just taking the money and allowing the, the industry to flounder or just like uh, be in I don't know limbo or purgatory if you will, and I think that's just unethical. Christy says your ideas are worth writing down, but I want to tell you that you don't need to apologize for those comments. Chrissy, I, I appreciate that. I guess I wasn't apologizing for the comments. I have not apologizing when I say something like Jeff Bezos and the richest people in the world don't pay any taxes. Look, I'm, I don't hate on billionaires. I don't, I don't hate because you're rich. But I think that if you are a billionaire, you could pay as much taxes as somebody who makes $100,000 a year. That's all I'm saying. And I'm not apologizing about that. I think it's more of like a, a, a quirk that I have. Uh, I'm not apologizing for for my statements. If you're gonna raise revenue... Go after the people that have the money that aren't paying their fair share. It's pretty simple. And I think everybody's getting so pissed off about this. And then especially if you're in these new industries, you're literally trying to drive new innovation within the United States and they're going after you and they don't have the balls to make a framework, to make sure that this industry grows. So it benefits not only everyone in it, but the US government for tax revenue. It's, it's, it's really, it's really a shame. It's unethical. And finally, another listener wrote in with a comment about something I said uh, the past week about voting with your dollar. And I wanted to read their comments and address those comments. The listener said, just wanted to talk to you about something you mentioned in passing regarding green energy and voting with your dollar on the face of it. It sounds like a nice way to bring about change, the change that you want to see in the world. Just remember that dollars are not distributed equally. In the simplest terms, just within the United States, 10% of the population have the majority and 20% of the people have control of the 80%. In another perspective, it's similar to a salaried worker throughout their entire lifetime making $60,000 a year and having having roughly one three-thousandth the voting power of a billionaire with just a single billion to their name. A single billion, huh? Of course, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't spend your money toward the things you or anyone think are important but it shouldn't be touted as a solution either. On the face of it, it sounds nice, and I've definitely said the same thing in the past. The problems with the idea are just not obvious until closer inspection. Thank you for that comment. I agree with you. If we're talking about billionaires having the leverage to, I guess, bring about change with the capital that they have, it's much easier for a billionaire to do that than the average person. But I I do want to make the difference about what we're talking about here. And what a billionaire is going to buy. When I'm talking about voting with my dollar, I'm talking about being a consumer and putting my dollars and buying a certain product. And if I want to make a movement, let's just say against Apple, and I don't want to buy the iPhone anymore, I don't buy the iPhone and I buy a Samsung. And if my reason is good enough, a lot of other people will not buy that iPhone and buy a Samsung and then iPhone will have to change their ways because they want don't want to lose market share to Samsung that's doing something better than, than Apple and the iPhone. A billionaire in this instance doesn't have more voting power than I do because the fact is they're only also going to buy one iPhone. Maybe they'll buy two or maybe they'll buy some for their friends, but they only can consume so much. And that's that's where I think the power with voting with your dollar is when it comes to, say, consumer goods. So my comment was voting with your dollar about what energy we want to use. If my house starts to go solar and my neighbor's house starts to go solar and my neighbor's house starts to go solar and everybody's buying solar energy... That is showing the market that we want solar. And one billionaire's house going solar is not going to be as powerful as my whole neighborhood or my whole city going solar. And so, yes, voting with your dollar does work. With that said, a billionaire can manipulate markets or create change or create policy or lobby or use their money in a more, I guess, behind the scenes way to bring about change. And that's something that the average person or average consumer cannot do. But I'm talking about consumer. I'm talking about me buying things with the dollar. Where do I use my money? Do I use it at Target and Walmart or the mom and pop shop? Do I use it at Chipotle or the corner burrito store or the bodega? This is two different things. And the billionaire, even though they have a billion dollars, can only eat so many burritos, can only buy so many iPhones, can only have one house or even if they have 20 houses, only their 20 houses can have solar. Well, my whole neighborhood can. And I think that that is a difference. That's the differentiator. However, and I will say this again, the billionaire can use the money to lobby, can use the money to change policy, can use the money in a back around back about way that also brings around different change. So I don't really think that they are kind of equitable because of the different practices and the different uses. And I'm talking about consumer products. I appreciate that. In our conversations today, I talked to Barney Mannering's, who's the founder of Vega Protocol, and we go deep into Web 3.0. Enjoy, Barney Mannering's. How you doing? Welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Matthew. I'm great, thank you. How are you doing?
1: I'm I'm excellent. I'm excellent. I hope I pronounced your uh, last name properly because we didn't rehearse off air. Uh, so I just you know said YOLO. Let's risk it and go straight into recording. But well, we're gonna be talking about Web. 3.0 today and how it fits into financial products and DeFi. And before we start this conversation in this rabbit hole, tell us what is Web3?
0: Yeah, so so Web3 is this the sort of the concept and you know you sort of had the first, first generation of the internet and the web, which was very sort of, uh, yeah, I guess, server-based, you know, sort of static pages, data sort of coming over. Then you had the sort of Web2 revolution, which was more interactive applications on the web, um, but very centralized and That kind of resulted in in the growth of very large, very controlling companies like Google and Facebook uh, and others that sort of had a huge control over our data, our privacy, the applications we use and sort of changed the web massively away from its kind of decentralized beginnings. And and Web3 is really reimagining the Internet and the web back towards a more decentralized future where applications are kind of owned and, and controlled by the users.
1: Excellent. Can you paint that a picture? Can you give us like a more visual of that? What does that look like? Uh, you said that it, it kind of like evolved to more centralized and you want to take it back. So what was, I guess, in the early web, what was the decentralized aspect of it?
0: Uh, so in the in the early web, I guess, yeah, you could you could create a website. You had complete freedom over that. Um, there were tools and and connectivity between those. You know, you had these sort of early things like web rings and, and web-based forums and, and news groups and Usenet, but these things were all managed by their users, controlled by their users. Really, you chose to to be part of a web ring or be part of a forum or include other people in your in your thing or not. And, and there wasn't someone sort of sat over all of that controlling it. Whereas now the kind of the modern alternative might be you have a Facebook page and you have Facebook commenters and groups. But what you're doing there is you're getting some of the same functionality, but you're also succumbing to the, the control of Facebook and the decisions of Facebook, not only on Things like how your page looks and how it's designed, but what kind of content is allowed and what moderation must happen and what rules are in place and how those things are structured and you know whether they show adverts. And so the the, the entire structure and shape has become very sort of monoculture. There's a small number of companies just decide how everything looks and feels. Uh, and they also sort of exercise control over that. And you know, to go back to the, the, the web one way, things were very sort of chaotic and, and people were very free to to create their own and, and, and express for themselves, but also to make their own kind of policy decisions and censorship decisions and, and things like that. And so, it really, the Web three model is to say, let's take the good bits of what developed. You know, the sort of the advantage of social networks and the social graph. Let's take the the more interactive applications and multimedia that we developed and all of the kind of tools and great stuff that we built as as part of Web two. But let's also then try and put that into into a system of protocols or systems or applications or services, whatever you want to call them, where the users take back that control and where there's much more individuality and decentralization and where you don't put power in the hands of, you know, effectively three or four companies in the U.S. government.
1: Oh, shots fired at the U.S. I saw there. Thanks, man. Um, <laughs> no, no. So so can you define more of the good bits and the bad bits that you want to see in Web3? Uh, because, look, you said decentralization uh, in the early, you're able to have more of like it's more self-governing. You're decentralized. It was your form. It was your page. I, like you said, you know, you, Facebook basically puts you in a box of how your page or how your group looks and what ads go go on there. And um, you know, I was just thinking about MySpace, how like it was centralized. We still could pimp, pimp my page like uh, HTML and make it look however you want. Um, but that was still going into the more centralized model. So I guess what does a hybrid look like? Because when you said a, like more of a hybrid of, you know, the centralized model versus the decentralized model and take the good and the bad bits off of, I don't know what you're going to say is the good and the bad bits.
0: Yeah. So the good bits are the capabilities we built, I guess, you know, we, went from a place where you had pretty static pages, you know, if you had a video, it was five seconds long and the size of your fingernail, um, you didn't have sort of interacted systems, payments didn't really work very well, um, you didn't have mobiles, so things weren't in your pocket. So, you know, the bad bits, were the good bits that we've developed in the sort of, you know, as, as the web has become more centralized are all these, all these applications, you know, these use cases where you combine things like payments, login services, moderation, you know, and that and review, th- review systems that allows you to have services like Uber, it allows you to have things like Amazon, it allows you to have communities that are built online, it allows you to have global publishing things like sort of Twitter. So we built these services and tools, which really were, were much more capable than what came in the first version of the web. And that's one of the reasons why they won out, I think, you know, they were both capable. But they also solve the problem of distribution. If everyone's got a website then for most people who've got a website, no one has a website because how does anyone find out you have your website? And so, you know, the sort of social graph and the sharing and all of that has really solved a distribution problem and discovery problem, as well as providing these value-add services and, you know, the things built around payments and location data. But the expense of that has been the the capabilities, the, the sort of fundamental things that we've built to do that, the payments, the location, the social graph have become owned by corporations and companies, which control how we use them and, and we have to play by their rules if we want to use those services and those features. We can't we can build those things into our our presence on the web but only if we put it on their site and if we abide by their rules. And so when we talk about taking the good bits it's like we'd love to have that location stuff. We'd love to be able to use the social graph and reputation systems and scoring systems to ensure that we don't deal with bad actors. We'd love to be able to have really quick and instant payments. We'd love to be able to have slick mobile apps and logins and identities online. But we'd like to be able to include those in things that we do, which don't mean signing up to someone's terms of service and you know, playing by their rules. And also probably you know, look at Apple and, and other app stores and things like that, also probably giving them 30% of our revenue or whatever it is they ask for. And so we'd like to take those, those capabilities and extract them from these sort of controlling, rent-seeking, monopolistic, monopolistic companies and give those capabilities to the individuals and, and the businesses that are actually, actually doing the work and providing the services.
1: You said a lot there, <laughs> so uh, let's try to break start breaking that down. And uh, I I I do want to you know the best conversations is when you have a devil's advocate here, and uh, and that's going to be me in this case. Uh, you, you said something about Apple App Store and the, taking the thirty percent, but what they actually also built was a place of security and trust. So I am not worried about the app store when I've downloaded something from there or the payments that are, are going through there because it's all facilitated through Apple, Apple Pay. And, you know, I know that there is a certain standard that's going to be on that app store. Uh, you're, you're, what you're talking about now is a Wild West uh, that is going to look like it, it takes um, a little bit of that. Comfortable security that we feel when we are in the uh, Apple App Store or using some of these uh, centralized products, and now decentralizing them again. So I guess my question is: is fine the the good bits that you mentioned, but the good bits that you didn't mention was the security that we that we now have with uh, the Facebook or the uh, the Apple and the App Store and you know these uh, these products because of the their ecosystems for lack of a better word that they created um how do you create that with a decentralized this decentralized model that you that you just mentioned and then who is in control who is uh the uh person who is monitoring everything because there are um bad actors out there there are you know when you do take things and decentralize them when you said uh, payments, when you said location, when you said reputation, when you said all these other things, that is still going to have to be overlooked and, and regulated in some way. So when we have a an efficient system of, I guess, usage um, to make sure that, you know, the, the customer feels comfortable using it. And also uh, in, one, in in just, a I guess, the customer experience and the interaction it, it, with the app or the DAP or the product, as well as the feeling of uh, good security and trust and uh, knowing that everything's going to be, um, just as it was before. So I, I guess explain how Web3 is going to address some of those issues that in the securities in this in the comfort comfort levels that we have now and then move that into a more decentralized model.
0: Absolutely. And uh, you know you you raise a very good question and a very good point. And I think the reason why it was almost inevitable that you end up with the centralized model first is is a lot of those things, it is easier to have an organization go, you know, assuming the organization can build trust and can can gain that trust. And you know, and you've seen this with Facebook, in fact, where Facebook has probably lost trust compared to someone like Apple. And so if you if you imagine someone looking at what they see on Facebook and saying, is Facebook looking out for me in my best interests with what they show me, you might get quite a lot of people who say, No, I don't really believe they are. I think they're looking out for their own interests. Whereas if you ask about the Apple App Store, I think you'd probably find the vast majority of people believe that Apple are. You know, funded by the people who buy their devices and are making good decisions for you. So I think it's you know it, it's variable between companies depending on their motivations, but the point still stands that's easier. So um, I'm going to change gear a bit and, and move from talking about the app store as an example to talking about something closer to, to my speciality because it's easier for me to kind of do that. And so I'm going to talk about the kind of some of the DeFi apps and, and financial products. And there's exactly the same. In fact, maybe even a bigger problem with finance than there is with apps, like a bad app might... You know, take over your computer, a bad financial product might lose your money, you might lose, you know, lose your house or something really quite terrible. So um, it's a really important problem there. And you know, one of the things we have to do is if we're going to decentralize things, then we need to provide alternatives. And, and there are basically two forms of that. The first form of that is effectively the products are decentralized, but you trust someone to advise you what to use. And that's kind of, you could call it like a hybrid model. You could effectively say, The person who sells me my phone, or a person who sells me a service of ratings, or a you know, some other service can rate can rate things, and you kind of have a a sort of a you know a curated selection of what is decentralized that that gives you a quality buy. It's almost like some of the sort of consumer consumer safety standards or consumer reporting companies like which and and things like that do that on products. That's one way to do it. It's not particularly um, it's not particularly compelling and exciting in the long term because it's sort of just says, well, we'll decentralize the product and then centralize the control somewhere else. It gives you the advantage that maybe you choose who to follow, but it's not amazing. Um, so the next way to start thinking about things is to start thinking about developing things like trust networks and rating systems. And interestingly, centralized services have started to do that a bit. So when you use Uber, you know your Uber driver has been rated by the other customers, not Uber. So Uber's not doing the job of Apple on the App Store. It's kind of doing a job to say if certain things happen, we'll fire the driver, but it's actually relying on the customers to do a lot of that for you. And so you can start to imagine building protocols and systems where you bring the same information in a decentralized way. And the advantage of those now is that instead of having Uber's opaque rules as to how they decide which driver to fire and which one to, to continue paying, you have extremely transparent rules and you can see everyone's ratings and transparency. Yeah. What I do admit is that we're still working this stuff out and we're still building these system. So right now, as you said, we have a bit of a wild west. We're still working out not only how to build the sort of the good rating and trust systems, but also what the right metrics are. And you see firms like Gauntlet and some of the other people in the space doing risk analysis on DeFi protocols and looking at what's dangerous and what's good and what's going to happen. And realistically, in the next few years, something we'll find is as protocols start to mature, people will be looking less at the raw edge of innovation in the product and more at you know perhaps like people like Compounder maybe blazing a trail with this but more at what's actually proving to be a stable robust risk low risk product that gives gives you what it says it will so you know, this stuff is still developing, but I think these kind of trust and reputation systems, particularly when you start to layer it on, like if I trust you, I tell the system I trust you, then I can place more weighting on your ratings than than a random person. And you know, we're starting to build those systems, but I, I agree it's, it's it's not the simplest of problems, and it's something we'll have to we'll have to comprehensively solve to make this stuff go mainstream.
1: I guess I'm wondering why is that better and. Again, devil's advocate. Um, wh- why is that better? I mean, you're talking about rating systems and trust systems. So that means if I don't engage in the system, I don't have the trust. I have to build that up. Um, it looks as though that it creates a hierarchy of of again like some sort of, it, where there's a wealth gap. We're talking about a reputation gap now, and that could just because of access or because of um, involvement um, in in you know maybe technical savvy. Um, so there's, it seems like a, there's a big barrier there. So I'm I'm trying to figure out why is that better?
0: Sure. So, so the, the reputation part isn't necessarily better, although I think it can be, um, something is probably worth noting, you know, when it comes to these kinds of systems and that's, this is sort of true for governance. It's true for ratings and reviews. What you don't need is every single person to engage. What you need is the people who care and people have the right the right incentives and the and the right outcome in mind to engage. And it sort of reminds me of when you're when you send your kids to school and some parents get really involved with like the parent teacher association and organizing school activities. You know, every parent doesn't need to do that. But if a subset who are really motivated do, everyone benefits. And I think you get the same in these communities. You set up incentive systems so that people who are really passionate about that thing are motivated and rewarded for helping everyone and then everyone has a set of ratings and and, and things that they can trust without needing to engage themselves. They can see the system working and everything's very transparent. That in itself might be a little better than a rating system on a centralized platform, depending on the incentives and motivations of the person running it. But it's not clear cut to me. What is better is, for instance, deciding that the the drivers and the users who operate a platform like Uber or the people who use a financial product and who use an exchange make the rules of the exchange and they decide what the fees are. And instead of paying... You know, 20%, 30% to an organic, like let's face it, the exchanges, whether it's a stock exchange or some company like Uber, they're running some servers and, and operating that infrastructure is not an expensive task, but because a lot of value throws through it, they take a huge, huge cut. So this is the kind of what they call rent-seeking behavior, where the amount of value extracted from a service is not based on what it costs to provide or what's a reasonable profit margin. It's based on exploiting the value that people receive from it. And that can be exploitative of the, of the workers, the drivers. Providing the service and it can also push up the prices and push down the utility for the people using it. And so I think one of the reasons why it's better is that you simply reduce the cost of these things by removing rent-seeking middlemen. The other reason that I think it's better is that you know in cases, in particular, let's get back to the sort of finance example where we're building platforms to allow people to create derivatives markets. The pace of innovation that you can have, where the people who actually have the demand and the supply of those products, the people who have the the need in the field out there in in any country in any industry can, can innovate themselves and do not have to kind of ask permission of a gatekeeper or pay someone a, a large fee or, or jump through lots of hoops or, you know, stand in line in a queue of other people who want to do that innovation. The pace of innovation and the ability to have products that really meet the needs of the users is much faster in the same way that the internet opened that up with sort of information sharing. So it's kind of, you know, you can have a cost and efficiency argument and you can also have a, a sort of innovation pace and an ability to adapt to the needs of users argument as well.
1: I really like what you said there. The pace of innovation. I think innovation and the pace of innovation uh, sometimes gets stifled and hindered um, by many different things. If it's uh, centralized corporations and lobbying, or um, just you know the lack of regulatory framework that allows an opaque uh, regulatory framework, so people don't have the confidence to move into a certain industry or market. Uh, but I do want to you know push back a little bit on what you said there. So there's a subset of uh, parents that want to get involved with the board of education, and um, I just want to make sure that uh, we understand that the parents sometimes sometimes and a lot of times when parents get involved with the board of education or going to the, the the, these school board meetings it's because they have time and they have the the ability to not because that they don't want to it's just maybe some parents are just working two jobs or uh, have three kids and no babysitter or just uh, their single family home so there's a there is a uh, an there's a, there's a privilege element there's a sure. pri- there's right. a privilege element to that and and I think that we just have to also keep that in mind when we talk about when we're creating decentralized systems and who has access and who has privilege to um, engage, uh, with that. Because if we are going off the board of education um, example, then we have to acknowledge that as well. Uh, but you did say something else here that, um, I really wanted to push and ask you about what is the two, actually two questions came out of that. Where's the incentive coming? If we're going to always lower costs, lower costs. Um, and then you try to uh, distribute the, um, I guess the rewards of uh, said system to uh, many different uh, stakeholders within said system uh, there ha- what's the incentive for the creators to get involved and create these things. If you're not going to be the next Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or even Mark Zuckerberg, or even less than that, <laughs> because uh, you know, I'm just wondering where the incentive comes in and then, you know, with the pace of innovation and these new financial products or derivatives or whatever that is, you know, coming out, w- what's the role of government there? Uh, because there is the consumer protection aspect of that that is a very serious issue now and we're looking at that but I guess I don't understand and I, it's not that I don't understand it's just I guess the question is how does the government get involved to protect the consumers uh, in and yet still not stifle innovation
0: so let's go let's do let's do the first one first there on, on incentives because actually that goes nicely back to the Sort of the school board example and your criticism there, which was was right around privilege. And one of the things that's important to sort of say is an advantage we can have over that example is that if we design these systems right and there is value in them for everyone, we can pay and reward the people who provide that value. And so instead of it having to be the people who can afford to, who effectively set the rules and and determine what happens in the school. Is actually the people who are interested to and who provide the most value to the ecosystem get rewarded and can, can make that something that they're rewarded for doing. So it's actually, it's better than that example. But the important point with that example is it only needs to be a subset who are interested. But it is absolutely key that they get rewarded because you don't want it to become a, a place for rich and powerful people to exert their power voluntarily, in quotes. Uh, so that's, that's really key there. And then, so when we talk about incentives, one of the really interesting things is like, let's say that you want to buy something and I want to sell it. And let's say it's a car, and neither of us know the price, but let's say you're willing, you've seen the car and you're willing to pay 10K for it. And I've sold the car and I'm willing to accept 8K to it for it. Now, if we agree to exchange the car for 9K, then we're both $1,000 better off than we, than we were willing to be. You, know, you were willing to pay 1,000 more than you ended up paying, and I was willing to accept 1,000 less. So both of us have generated $1,000 of value versus what the value we would have placed in that transaction. You know, and what we were willing to do. So one of the important things is that these ecosystems are not zero-sum games. They create value for people because they give, when you when you come to a deal like that, if, if your economics and your mechanism is right, both sides end up winning. And the important point is there, if we both won $1,000, then maybe we both give up $200 of that $1,000 benefit compared to what we would have accepted in order to pay the people who provide the curation of the system and make sure that it works well and make sure that it's safe and run the infrastructure. And that's the beauty of this. So you've got this sort of system with multiple sides. You've got people providing services that make it work. You've got people providing the supply of the product, You know whether it's liquidity, whether it's cars, whether it's Uber rides, and you've got the people providing the demand and buying the product. And if you design the system and build the right mechanism, what you can do is create something that's mutually beneficial. Everyone ends up with something that's you know, at a price that's ha- that they're happy with, and also generates value to keep the system running. And the key to designing these economic mechanisms is to make sure that that all of those things line up, so that you can so that you can build a system that works and that 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 pays all of the actors to do everything well. So that's the incentive answer. Um, I don't know if you want to say anything there before I move on to the sort of government role part.
1: No, I, w- I would love to hear the government one.
0: Cool. And so the government one's a really interesting one because. On one side, there's a simply political part of it, right? Because there's a political thing where some people will tell you, it's up to me if I want to harm myself, and the government should not prevent me from doing so. They can provide information and education, but they should not stop me. you know so at, the, at one end is a very extreme sort of libertarian view. Uh, at the other end is this sort of view where the government should control, what is provided to everyone, and should make sure everything is safe, and should not allow me to harm myself. And you know, in between there, there's probably the more reasonable people's view, and some people will sit more on the "I would like the government to keep me safe" side, and some people will sit more on the "I would like the government to leave me alone for the most part" side. And you know, there are there are reasonable views, in, in, and the extremes are probably both too extreme. Uh, so, so partly you have to kind of politically just decide what you want, and if you what you want is no one to be able to sell something to someone without it being approved by a government license and having registration, then global decentralized networks, power bank, encryption and cryptocurrency are probably not for you. And, and that's, that's okay, but that is a really a political, a political decision some people will have. The other side of it is kind of, the next thing I look at is actually how good are governments at doing that? And what I mean is in the UK where I usually am, there are some things that I can do with my money that are really, really, really crazily risky. I can invest in penny stocks, I can go gambling, I can do online gambling, which is tax-free on the returns as well. And I can, so I can gamble all my net wealth online with no tax on the returns I make in the UK. So like I can do that and no one is going to tell me not to. They put some warnings up saying, be safe, if it's not fun, don't do it, but they don't stop. But then equally there are financial products that are sold by actual banks that have real investment purposes, but that are considered too risky for the average consumer to do, even though they can risk their all of their wealth on gambling. So the, what I'm sort of saying there is equally, you know, I can go and spend all my money on alcohol and become, uh, become an alcoholic and ruin my life that way. So I guess what I'm saying is there's a, there's a very large gap between what we think of when we think of consumer protection and regulation in an ideal world and what we actually get. So the first side of it is, well, what would, be a, what would be a good system? And one of the things I tend to think is it's very nearly impossible to control all of the ways that someone might use even quite reasonably pitched products to hurt themselves, so I tend to think that what you need to do is you need to go after outright fraud. You need to go after outright manipulation and taking advantage by people. But that tends to be individuals perpetuating that, and those businesses were going to be illegal, whether they're you know whether they're done out the back room of a pub or whether they are online cryptocurrency systems. And those kind of scams and frauds exist everywhere and need to be need to be investigated and stopped, whatever form they come in. But then when you get beyond that, I tend to think that you're better off educating people and saying, you know, watch out, like these things can be dangerous. If people learnt at school and spent time, you know, maybe maybe they spend less time doing algebra and more time understanding what compound interest is like and how much it hurts you if you take out a loan and what volatility is and what risk is, you know, those are things that you're going to come across as an adult. And if you're educated in those and you understand them and there are warning labels on things and you're advised... Like you are with alcohol, or like if you go skiing or take participate in dangerous sports, you're not told you can't do it. You're told this is dangerous. Be careful. And I tend to think that if you do that as a government, and if you watch out for the outright frauds and the criminals, you're going to get a better result for the population as a whole than if you teach the population to believe that you can protect them from every financial harm or every every other harm. So I think it's a really good question. I think we we need to continuously look at the role of government because education, investigating fraud, investigating things is is good. And the other final thing I'd say is that what I've seen recently is governments like automating ways to, in quotes, keep people safe, that also maybe make them money. You know, so you kind of look at this with speed limits and speed cameras, where it's like, are we safer because there's a speed camera that charges people 50 bucks every time someone goes through it five miles an hour too fast? Or would we be safer if there were real police out looking for crazily dangerous driving? And and you can do the same with finance. It's like you have automated government systems that regulate and say what you can and can't do, but no one looking into which companies are really exploiting people because it's easier to create a blanket rule. So I tend to think that we we need to be really introspective about our governments and saying, are they delivering value? Are they helping us understand and navigate the world? And are they helping remove the real criminals? And I don't really think that the the thing that's, that's driving criminality and things that exploit people and things that hurt people is whether or not these kind of decentralized systems exist. I think the bad people will try and do bad things, and they'll find ways. Some of the tools help them, some of them don't, and you need to hold the government to task for really going after the really bad stuff and investigating it properly.
1: Since you had such a long answer, uh, I, I don't, I don't know even know where to start right now. Um, but <laughs> when it comes to the government answer, I tend to tend to agree. Um, that one, there is a huge conflict, uh, not only conflict of interest. What you said is like you set up the, you know, for your safety, and then you're taking money every time somebody isn't safe uh, and and perpetuating that. That is uh, also, uh, I think that's a, you know, conflict of interest. Uh, I also think there's some hypocrisy there as well is that you allow one certain product or, or, you know, either the gambling or whatever, and then don't allow other ones because they're too risky. That's also a little bit of hypocrisy. And I do think that education um, to make the best choices is uh, a a good way to do that. Um, I guess my last question, if you would, briefly, because this might be a weird question, but when you were talking about this, the only thing I was thinking about is gun violence in America and the role of government. And then because it's such a pervasive problem here, when we have one, a lot of guns, we're Americans. You, you, I think that's uh, something that you, you guys in the UK know that we do have. Um, uh, but we also have a lot of gun violence, about a lot of shootings. And, and yet, you, if you want to put your definition of how governments should regulate onto that problem, you would say educate people on how to use guns, but yet let the guns just be... Pro- prolific in the, in the system. Um, would you agree with that?
0: I think it's a really difficult question because, um, you, you come from like the, the problem, the problem that causes the gun violence might not be everyone having guns, but everyone not having guns would definitely reduce it. And the problems that, that maybe cause it might be so, might be very difficult. They can be psychological, they can be societal, they can be cultural, and those things can be very, very hard to, to move or, or to disrupt. And, you know, it, it is an interesting question. And I think, you know, I think the answer is when things get dangerous enough. And I think, it, you know, it's, to the, it's for the American people to decide whether the freedom to have guns is is more important than, than the danger. And, you know, there's, a, there's obviously a big debate about that in America, and there's much less debate, you know, in the UK, people are pretty happy to have a lot of restrictions on what guns they can own and what they can do with them. Um, in order to be safer but the, the, every every society needs to decide that but you know in in if i was choosing as if i was an american citizen and was choosing i would probably say like i'm willing for this to be made illegal now the difference between you know it, it's actually a really good parallel because in the same way that you can make so you could make certain defi products illegal but you couldn't prevent them from existing and being used by people. This is also true of guns. Like most of the gun violence in the UK is probably by gangs and it's probably illegal guns. And so the same thing is true. The guns might be illegal and making them illegal might reduce the de- number of deaths, but it still doesn't mean the government has control over whether there are guns and who has them. It just means that the government says if we find out you have them, we can we can fine you or put you in prison or whatever it is we're going to do. And this is going to be the same with things like defi. We may well say at a certain level, some products are too dangerous to be offered to consumers or to be built. You can say that, you know, and you say that, and then if you find out that people in your society are doing it and offering it to people, you investigate that and you put them in prison. But what you don't have, just the same as with the guns, is because it's this decentralized network, you don't have the ability to see that it's happening, detect it and turn it off. You have to go and investigate. You have to work out who's doing it and then you have to take them to court. So it's actually a really good parallel. And I think one thing you have to separate is Society, democracy has to decide where they place those limits and rules. But the important principle of decentralization is you don't have a right to kind of look at everything everyone is doing online and automatically block the things you think are dangerous. You kind of have to give them the freedom and the privacy and the encryption and the ability to do these transactions together. And then you have to send your police to do investigation, to look into what's bad and to go after people who really are doing bad stuff.
1: Barney Mannering's, founder of Vega, thanks for coming on and having this chat. And I don't think we're going to uh, create any solutions to the gun violence, DeFi, um, government uh, oversight regulation question that has been perpetuating societies for centuries, if not millennia. So uh, we're going to stop it there. But I thought that it was a good parallel. And thank you for, um, you know, uh, entertaining me with that answer. And um, let's uh, check back in in a couple months and try to go down deeper into this rabbit, rabbit hole and you know, see if we can't answer that question.
0: Awesome. Be great to come back and, and chat again.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Decrypt Daily. My name is Matthew Deemer. Don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts, like, subscribe, share, and leave us a comment. And until tomorrow, I'm actually sorry, I'm taking off on Saturday. But until Sunday, where we are going to have a new episode, a new kind of format, we're going to do weekly roundups with the editor-in-chief of Decrypt. I'll see you then. Sunday, weekly roundup, the Decrypt Daily. Until then, happy hodling.